Thank you again, worship team, for leading us in songs of praise of our Jesus and the love that is demonstrated in him. And uh, I pray that even as we worship here, but even as we worship out there during the week and during these couple weeks of Christmas season, that we would bring honor that is uh, due the Lord Jesus Christ in how we live and how we speak. Uh, I was just, uh, yesterday night, I was with my wife, and we were just kind of walking through Target. Uh, it's kind of a uh, Saturday tradition. No, just we're just there. <laughs> we're looking through the Christmas decoration section, you know. It's kind of just, just, you know, saying, well, I made some deals, right? No, no deals. Uh, well, anyways, we looked around, and you kind of looked all around. Uh, there was two whole, you know, at least probably eight different aisles of Christmas decorations. And I looked through the whole section. I didn't go through the, you know, the Christmas religious cards, okay? I didn't go that section. But I just went through the general decorations section, you know. And my wife and I could not find anything that pointed to Jesus Christ. You know, I was expecting nativity scene for $39.95, you know. I was expecting maybe a little star of Bethlehem that you could put on, you know, that would be, uh, you know, for $19.95. I was expecting some kind of, you know, just something, well, if I would be hopeful, I would say they'd have some big sign that said Jesus is the reason for the season, right? But alas, we did not find anything like that. No single allusion, reference to the birth of Christ in the, I'll call it the Christmas section of the store. No, that's, you know, I'm not condemning Target, okay? I'm not condemning Target. That's not, that's not what we're about. We're not about condemning businesses. Because if there was money to be made in selling those things, Target would sell it. It just kind of reflects our society as a whole in this, in this uh, kind of where we are at as a nation that basically when the nation celebrates Christmas, we celebrate everything but Jesus. You know, maybe secretly in your heart you celebrate Jesus, but what we do, what we decorate, what we uh, buy for the season is really of a very secular nature. Trees, lights, and candles, and uh, funny ornaments, Santa Claus, you know, snowmen, reindeer, those kinds of things. Though, and though that may be the condition of the heart of our nation, I was just reflecting upon it. It just spurred me as a believer in Christ. And I would extend this exhortation challenge for us as believers in Christ so that we would ensure that though the world will not celebrate the birth of Christ this season, let's make sure that we celebrate the birth of Christ this season. No, not by putting necessarily nativity scene or putting up Jesus the reason for the season, but through our words and through our deeds and through how we celebrate it. Do we proclaim, make known that why we celebrate this season is because of Jesus Christ, because of his birth that was that some 2,000 years ago for the sake of our sins? And so I was just saying that's, that's, that's the pre-sermon for you, okay? That's, well, that's all I have to say about that. But let's continue our worship as we turn to this section, this message in Isaiah. And because... As a look at this message on Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 8 through 10 through 4. By the way, I want to welcome all of you who are guests and visitors with us today. Uh, glad to have you from, looks like we have a lot many college students back in, in town. Uh, I guess it's Christmas break, probably. So glad to have you with us. Uh, if you don't have a church that you call home while you, and you live in the city, we welcome you to come worship with us here at San Francisco Bible Church. So just so good to have you uh, with us uh, in today as we worship the Lord. But today we have been going through the book of Isaiah, and we come to a section where we're just into our next passage in Isaiah, and it's Isaiah 9, 8 through 10, 4. And I have to admit that um, 
it's, it's just sort of an odd passage because it's instead of talking about God's love, God's mercy, God's grace that we think about when we think of G, uh, when we think about Christmas, I'm actually going to talk about God's anger this morning, God's anger, God's wrath. Uh, and that's kind of an odd subject. You know, I know in life there are certain subjects that do feel awkward to speak about in certain circumstances. Our parents will teach us those kinds of things. Oh, don't talk about that in that circumstance. And, for example, it's, you know, when you're at a birthday party, especially a birthday party of an older person, you don't talk to them about their death. You say, oh, I'm glad to see you're still alive. You haven't died yet. That would be inappropriate. You obviously wouldn't go to a wedding and tell them, and tell, well, hope you don't get a divorce. You don't talk about divorce at a wedding. Or, you know, even a little more kind of funnily, you, you don't go to Pete's and ask for a, a venti, right? Can you ever do that? If you, don't, if you haven't done it, go ask for a venti next time. You're Pete. It's a large. It's a large. It's just awkward. Well, I kind of say that in jest, but you know that there are certain times where certain circumstances just seem, certain subjects are just kind of awkward. That's kind of how I felt this passage because I studied this passage. When I first read this passage, I said, this is, ooh, Lord, you want me to preach this message on the... The Sunday, two Sundays before Christmas Sunday, uh, you know, uh, you know, I, I should have preached uh, the, the, you know, the, the virgin passage. I should have brought the wonderful counselor, Prince of Peace passage. Uh, but uh, this one, Lord, it seems out of place because I'm talking about God's wrath, God's anger. Now, this passage, ain't no doubt about it, is about God's judgment. It's about God's wrath upon sinful Israel. That's what this passage is about. But I believe that after studying this, and I've been encouraged after studying this passage, I hope that you will find that it is actually, this, as we discover and study this passage together, it's a very fitting passage. It prepares us for Christmas as we celebrate this season. You see, when we speak of the birth of our Savior, it begs the question, Savior from what? We often will say that he's our Savior from sin, and that's true. But more importantly, we say, or particularly, we say that he saved us from, the, from all the aspects of sin, whether it's from the ultimate, he will one day save us from the presence of sin. He is currently saving us from the power of sin. But we also say that he has saved us from the penalty of sin, the judgment upon sin. Or more to the point, Christ came to save us from the wrath of God upon sin. You see, this morning, we're going to learn that a clear understanding of the wrath of God is necessary to understand the love of God in giving us his son. We often will speak, and we, I think we ought to speak, think of Christmas as being a time of the love of God manifested, the grace of God manifested. But we, all, we cannot understand those to the extent that we ought to apart from understanding the wrath of God, God's anger, his hatred towards sin and towards those who sin. And just as a background for us, uh, this passage is, is, in the, is a new section. We just completed 7 through 9-7 where we looked about uh, Jesus being uh, the, the virgin who would have, be a child, the sign of the Emmanuel who would come, who would be a hope for the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom. But here at chapter 9, verse 8, a, a, a change takes place where the prophet Isaiah no longer is addressing the southern kingdom, but we see that he starts addressing the northern kingdom, Israel. And that is odd for us because Isaiah was a prophet to the southern kingdom. So we, it's kind of just curious, why would he start describing or, or 
talking to the addressing the, the northern kingdom when this is a prophecy to the southern kingdom. What's more, this is the first of many prophecies where God will, through Isaiah, will direct judgment to different nations, starting with uh, Israel, the northern kingdom. Next time, it'll be Assyria. And then chapters 13 to 21, it'll be a whole n- a number of different nations addressed uh, where the judgment is declared. We ask ourselves, why? Why then does a prophecy that is directed towards the southern kingdom, Judah, include judgments upon other nations? What business does Judah need to know why that God is going to judge these other nations? And the, I believe the answer is that God's judgment upon the surrounding nations shows to Judah that God fairly and justly judges all sinful people. And if Judah continues in her sinful ways, that she will face God's judgment too. And that's where we draw, I think we can draw a lesson for us today as well. That God's judgment upon Israel is also a warning for us, for people today. That God still and will judge sinful people. We're going to look in this passage just four, kind of four different sections, four words, if you will, that God has to the northern kingdom Israel that describes his judgment upon them, his wrath upon them for their sin. Uh, as an outline for us, we can just look at it as four reasons for the inevitable and impending judgment of the Lord upon Israel, upon sinful Israel. But really, we could say these are four reasons of the inevitable and impending judgment of the Lord upon all man, upon all man. So let's look at these four, four areas that God rightly and justly judges mankind, or, but particularly the nation Israel. Number one, uh, before we do that, let's pray. <laughs> Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and pray that you would teach us now. Even as we come to a subject that is a difficult subject, I'm sure that it, it, this is a subject that for many could turn people away from, uh, from, our, uh, from wanting to hear what you have to say. But Lord, whatever our sensibilities are, we know that this is your word. Give us a sensitivity to hear what you have to say to us. Help us to not be afraid to look upon your wrath, to study it, to understand it, so that we can better understand your other, as- your other attributes as well. And Father, as we study this passage, may you cause us to examine our own selves. Father, examine our lives for sin, knowing that we too, because of sin, deserve your wrath. But Father, we pray that you would cause us then to Remember why Christ came, to deliver us from this wrath. So thank you, Father, for this passage. And pray your, your spirit would teach us now as we look to these, these four points. In Jesus' name, amen. Number, re, number one, the first of all, the Lord's judgment upon Israel is both inevitable and impending because they are people that are full of pride. They're full of pride. In verse 8, look at the verse 8 with me. The Lord sends a message against Jacob. And it falls on Israel. And all the people know it, that is Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, asserting in pride and in arrogance of heart. And I'll stop there. Here we see that verse 8 tells us this is a word from the Lord. The word message is actually the, literally the word for word. So this is a message that was, through from, that was through from Isaiah's mouth. It's actually a word from God. It's a word from the Lord God himself. And it's a message that's against Jacob. It's upon Israel. It's for Ephraim and Samaria. These four 
uh, proper names, Jacob, Israel, Ephraim, Samaria, are all basically references to the northern kingdom. Jacob, of course, is the father of the 12 tribes. Uh, but sometimes Jacob was called Israel, and Israel became the name, the predominant name for the northern kingdom when the, when the tribes, when the kingdom divided into two. Ephraim is the largest tribe in the northern kingdom, and Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom. So this is a word from God to the northern kingdom. Verse uh, 9b, the latter half of verse 9, reveals God's particular charge against them. Their char- his charge against them is because of their pride and arrogance of heart. We can almost say that this, and this is not just the problem that Israel has, but this is a problem that all of us have. Pride is one of the most common sins of man. Pride thinks of oneself as uh, being more highly than he ought. Pride is often the picture, this word is often used of the rising and swelling of the sea, of oceans and waves. You know how sometimes when you're in the sea, the waves can bring the sea to be much higher than it is. But we all know that there's a particular level that sea level is always at. There's a, there's a general level. So it's only, but that swelling of the sea is really just not really how high the sea is. It's just at that moment. And that's kind of how man pride, man's pride is. Pride, man, pride makes man want to make ourselves seem more than we are. But when we all fall back, in the reality, we are simply not as great as we are. Pride makes us think that we're better than ourselves. And pride's not just something that Israel was guilty of. Pride was something that we're all guilty of. It's, some, it's the, the boastful pride of life that we find in our lives. And it's like, you know, it's such a natural tendency for us to even think, well, you know, uh, in, well, that we're not as, I'm not as bad as the other person. And even when we think that, that can be an actually an act of boastful pride. That I'm better than the other person over there. When there are, we could probably, we just happen to be looking the wrong way. You find yourself, you look the other way and you'll find yourself, there are many, many, many people who are probably doing better than you are with regards to sin. Pride thinks of oneself more highly than he ought. Pride thinks that he or she is better than he really is. Pride manifests that he or she thinks that they can do more than they really can. And that's what the Israelites were thinking. That was this, this pride and arrogance was in their heart. Their specific arrogance was manifested in verse 10, in the very words that they speak in verse 10. Look at verse 10 with me. The bricks have fallen down. This is what Israelites are saying. But we will rebuild with smooth stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will replace them with cedars. Early in chapter 8, verse 6 and 7, God had promised to judge Israel through the king of Assyria. Remember, um, he had promised that though they were threatening the nation of Judah, God told King Ahaz that he would bring the nation of Assyria to actually judge and destroy or take captivity the nation of Israel. And we know that historically, according to the biblical historical records, that this Syrian king Tiglath-Pileser would conquer Israel and carry many into captivity. And though this would happen, instead of being humbled by God's impending judgment upon Israel, Israel would boastfully think that they would actually, they could rebuild themselves even after God's judgment, that they would make it better. The description here of bricks falling down, well, we'll rebuild it with smooth stones. All the sycamores, our trees have been cut down, but we'll replace them with cedars. These are the wood that they might have used for their homes and the bricks that they might have used for their their different buildings. This describes a pic- it's a picture of a destruction that took place that probably would take place after the Assyrian conquering. But in their pride, 
and their arrogance. Israel is going, is thinks that we're just going to rebuild it. And that's just human nature, isn't it? Even when we, mankind experiences natural disaster tragedies, we often will say, well, we will rebuild. We'll make it better. In fact, that's how we think that we show that we're better than we, are, we can overcome even the trials and the, and the, the disasters of our life. And that's what the Israelites did. In fact, the quality of the material even is, is improved. Instead of bricks, they're going to build with smooth stones. Instead of sycamores, they're going to build with cedar trees. And the cedars of Lebanon, you know, those are a, a superior type of tree. This was the prideful attitude of the Israelites. That though, even though God was declaring to them that they would face the destruction and, of the nation at the hands of the king of Assyria, here the nation of Israel said, well, we're going to make ourselves, we're going to rebuild, and we're going to rebuild everything better. No, there will be no rebuilding. They will all be taken into captivity. They will only be left in desolation. This was the arrogance and the, of the, the, the prideful arrogance of these Israelites. And this, is not com- this was common to mankind. This was manifested in man even from the earliest of days. We think of Genesis chapter 11 when the people of earth tried to build the first tower, the Tower of Babel, you recall. And there they defied God. They said, so we will build this tower so it will reach to heaven so that we won't be scattered. They thought that they could accomplish things on their own hands when God instead chase, uh, scatters them away. We see the consequences of this pride, this sinful arrogance in verses 11 to 12. Verse 11 to 12, look there with me. Therefore, here's the consequence for their arrogance. The Lord raises against them adversaries from resin and spurs their enemies on. The Arameans on the east and the Philistines on the west, and they devour Israel with gaping jaws. In spite of all this, his anger does not turn away, and his hand is still stretched out. We learn in the Bible, and we see illustrated here, that pride inevitably leads to destruction. Pride leads to destruction. The scriptures tell us in Proverbs 15, 25, the Lord will tear down the house of the proud. And in Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Make no mistake, God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And so God, because of Israelites' pride, he raises up, he promises to raise up adversaries from the surrounding nations. Adversaries, of, they had allied themselves with Rezin, who was the, the king of, the king of uh, Aram. And he says, I'm going to bring to you Rezin's adversaries to come upon you. I'm going to bring the Arameans. So there's, even the Arameans will be divided. There'll be other Arameans on the east. There'll be Philistines on the west. And the, the other enemies of Rezin will be primarily the king of Assyria. All these surrounding nations will gather around, will look upon Israel in, the, in its destruction, and they will see its, its desolation, and they will devour Israel with gaping jaws, with an open mouth. This judgment will be a total judgment. They'll be surrounded by enemies. And yet, we see despite the terrible judgment that comes upon them for their pride, verse 12 ends with a phrase that's, that just stands out. It stands out in this passage because it is repeated a total of four times. It's a passage that, remind, that teaches us that though there is a, a temporal earthly judgment that God brings upon Israel for their sin of pride, that God's wrath upon sin is not done. It's not done. Even though he pours out his wrath through their being taken, being conquered by Assyria, being surrounded by enemies, they'll eventually be taken into captivity. But God says 
he is not done. In spite of all this, his anger does not turn away, and his hand is still stretched out. That's what this passage means. It means that God's anger, God's wrath does not turn away. In, even in all this, even all this that's going to happen, God's anger will not turn away. There's a wrath of God that is not satiated, not, fulfill, not, not addressed yet, that it's still coming. It's impending, and it's inevitable. His hand is still stretched out. He doesn't say, well, I've sent you in Assyria. Okay, I'm good. Your, uh, your sin is dealt with. We're good. We're good. I'm good with you. There is a wrath of God that is still coming upon sin, upon Israel's sin. This phrase will be repeated in, in verse 12, verse 17, verse 21, and chapter 10, verse 4. And when you see something that's repeated four times in a passage, you can, can basically conclude that that's the main idea of this passage. That God's wrath does not turn away. That there is, the God's wrath is not something that will dissipate. It will be diminished. God's wrath must be satisfied against sin. And it must be satisfied against sin because he is holy. You know, when we know someone offends us and they kind of like, oh, hey, here's a hamburger. I say, oh, okay, we're good. (laughs) Hey, oh, hey, oh, I I stole from you. Here, here's a hundred bucks. Oh, cool, we're good, man. We're good. That's with sinful men and women, but not so with a holy, eternal God. Because a holy God, when you sin against a holy God, he, first of all, must judge sin. Holiness demands, and his justice demands, a judgment for sin. It's like if we had judges that didn't judge sin. So, oh, you murdered someone? Okay, it's all good. Oh, you killed someone? You raped someone? Oh, that's all right. Oh, how merciful, how loving, how unjust. But God is just. God will judge every sin. But because, and what's more, though, God is an eternal God. And when we sin against an eternal God, no matter how little the sin may be, even the smallest of sins demands before an eternal God an eternal punishment, an eternal judgment, because it is a front against an eternal God. And so that's why the Bible teaches that the judgment for sin is eternal suffering in hell, a place of fire and darkness gnashing of teeth, agony. It is a terrible place to be, and our words don't even fully describe how terrible it will be. But we learn from this passage that God's wrath is not satisfied by a temporal earthly judgment. Yes, God uses temporal earthly judgments to discipline his people, to show them that, that, that the error of the sin there in the ways, and God does that even in our lives sometimes. He'll, because of our sin, he'll allow us to experience a, a consequences of our sin, a, a judgment, an affliction because of it. And sometimes we, it just gets all oh, dawns on our head. Oh, wow, I need to turn away from this sin. This is crazy to keep continuing sin. But don't make no mistake, God's wrath is not satiated, not satisfied, even though there is that temporal judgment. Despite being conquered by the surrounding nations, for Israel, God's wrath demands a greater judgment and this judgment is both inevitable and impending. It's not, it does not turn away. It is still stretched out. It's, it's going to come. There is, and this is not true. Just, this, is, this principle is not just true of Israel, but it's true of everyone in this world. God, in a holy, eternal God, must 
judge every single sin out of his, in, with an eternal judgment. We see a second reason for the Lord's inevitable and impending judgment upon Israel. And so the rest of these points really just repeat this. We're just going to repeat. We're just going to show again how Israel deserves to be judged and the fact that there is a wrath that is still coming upon them. Though, despite the fact that God's going to bring judgment to them in the form of Assyria. The second point is this. God's inevitable and impending judgment upon Israel comes because they are all godless evildoers. All godless evildoers. And that's just a biblical term. I like that term. So, you know, something, something really has a good ring to that. Godless evildoers. Verse 13, yet the people do not turn back to him who struck them, nor do they seek the Lord of hosts. See, despite God striking them with judgment, he promised to bring a judgment through a king of Assyria and even the surrounding nations. The people are going to be stubborn in their pride. They're not going to repent. They're not going to turn back to God. They're going to say, oh, Lord, we see the error of our ways. We turn back to you. We repent. It's not going to be like the judges. We just studied the judges recently uh, in our Sunday school class. And, and at least the people of Israel had this common sense to know when God afflicted them with, with enemies, they had the common sense, oh, we have sinned. Let's turn back to God. But not these Israelites. They would be struck by God, and, but they would not turn back to him. Nor would they seek the Lord. They would not seek him for counsel. You know, Lord, why is this happening? Instead, just like the nation of Judah, when Judah, when they faced their judgment, they went to mediums and spiritists. Then how much worse the nation of Israel, who did not even worship God, who were basically caught up in idol worship. And so because of this, because they did not turn away from their sin, God was going to bring about a further judgment upon them. In verse 14 to 16, we read there these words, these words, So the Lord cuts off head and tail from Israel, both palm branch and bulrush in a single day. The head is the elder and honorable man, and the prophet who teaches falsehood is the tail. For those who guide this people are leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are brought to confusion. What we see here is that God, as part of, his, part of the judgment of the, from the nation of Assyria, is that God is going to remove people from the land. He's actually, one of, this is one of the things that he promised to Israel through, in the Mosaic Covenant. That when they persist in their sin and they don't repent after many, many times, God will one day just simply take them all out of the land. He's going to remove them from the very land that was promised to them. But here in verse 14 to 16, he says he's going to take away all their leaders. He's going to take away their head and their tail. The head referring to the elders and the honorable men, the, the, the leaders, the kind of the, the, the natural leaders of the nation, even those who are honorable, the people they showed respect to. But, latter, but as well, God's going to take away their, their tail. Usually, you know, your leaders are, your, is, are called your head, but he, there's a dual leadership of the nation. There's people who are leading in the head. There are people who are leading the tail. And these people who are leading the tail are those who are false prophets. And there were many in Israel in those days as well. And so the result of this two-headed leadership of Israel, both the, the obvious elders and honorable men and then the false prophets, was creating a confusion among, in the nation. They were leading them astray, and there was a confusion which way to go. You see, leaders are ultimately given to the people of God to lead them and guide them to righteousness. To be examples, even us as church leaders, as elders, we're, our responsibility is not just to teach, though we do that, but one of our primary responsibilities is to be examples, to show exa- be examples of righteousness. And, of course, we're not perfect, but that hopefully by the general pattern of our lives, we're showing the way 
to walk in righteousness. But these leaders did not. They were leading their people astray, and so God promises to remove them. This is, not, this is judgment not only upon the people, the leaders, but it's judgment upon the nation. A nation that's without leaders is a nation that will be thrown into utter chaos. But the judgment wouldn't stop there. Look at verse 17. It continues on. Therefore, the Lord does not take pleasure in their young men, nor does he have pity on their orphans or their widows. For every one of them is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth is speaking foolishness. In spite of all this, his anger does not turn away. And his hand is still stretched out. God's judgment would not stop with the leaders. He would also not take pleasure in their young men. You know, when we think about a society, who is the kind of the, the strongest, the, the most kind of the most capable of society, it is the young. The young men and women, the, the, those of you that are in your 20s and 30s. You guys are probably at the prime and 40s. I'll throw in 40s for some of you guys out there and gals. 20, 34, those are the young men. Those are the prime of your life when you, you still got it. You still you have much resources, your strength. You have, you have some wisdom and knowledge. Uh, but those are the young men. And God says he will not take pleasure in them either. And then what's more, God says that he will not have pity upon the godless and evildoers. I, I'm sorry, upon the orphans and the widows. He won't have, this is odd because normally in the scriptures, God has compassion on orphans and widows, right? God, these are the people that God, particularly his heart is for. But even for the nation of Israel, he says, I will not have pity on even them. Why? Because every one of them, every one of the orphans, every one of the widows, every one of the young men and women, every one of the elders and honorable men, every one of the, those of the false prophets, every one of them is godless and an evildoer. And every mouth is speaking foolishness. From great to small, the whole nation, God says, are godless evildoers. They are characterized by godlessness, by unrighteousness, by wickedness, and by foolishness. They speak foolishness because it all begins with their rejection of God. They are, they are, they, they turn away from God, and so they practice evil, and so they speak things as fools. And we kind of come into a, a, here a, a general principle that's true in Scripture, that godliness, godlessness, unrighteousness, and foolishness go hand in hand. These three characteristics of, of mankind, of, of men and women, are true. If you have one, you generally have the other two. When you do not follow God, when you deny God, when you deny his existence, when you do not uh, when you reject God's word, it leads to unrighteousness, wickedness, and then furthermore, it leads to foolishness in your life, in your speech. The Bible teaches this in places such as Psalm 14, verse 1, where the fool has said in his heart, there is no God, yet they are corrupt, they have committed abominable deeds, there is no one who does good. See, the fool denies God, and because he denies God, he makes himself God. When you have no God, who's God? You are. You can make yourself, you decide what's right. You decide to do what is right in your own eyes. You decide what is the best for you. And so, therefore, you choose to do whatever you want. And oftentimes, because, because mankind is sinful, you choose to do things that are corrupt, abominable before God. And what's more, you end up speaking foolish things as well. 
The same thing happens today when foolish man denies the existence of God, right? The world, in our world today, many claim themselves to be atheists. That they know for certain, they've, they've studied the world, they know absolutely that there is no God in this world. <laughs> That's the height of pride. As if they've been everywhere in this world. As if they've studied everything there is to study. And saying there is no God when everything in this world points to God. But because they deny the existence of God, they act as a God to themselves, like the people in the period of Judges, for instance, deciding and doing what is right in their own eyes. And once again, at the very end of verse 17, we find that familiar refrain, the main theme of this passage, to such people, to those who are godless evildoers, who are characterized by godlessness, unrighteousness, foolishness, God says, his anger does not turn away. His hand is still stretched out. Even though they're basically, all their people are going to be taken away in captivity, God says, his anger, his wrath still remains. God's judgment, God's wrath is still inevitable and impending. And this is not just true for Israel, but this is true for everyone in the world. God's wrath, God's judgment is still, even right now, right here, inevitable and impending for everyone, for all sinners. Romans 1.18 tells us this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. God's wrath is revealed from heaven. It is, being pour, is going to be poured out against ungodliness and unrighteousness because they suppress the truth. And that suppression of truth is going to be called foolishness in, the verses, in a few verses later. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. These people, even though in their very being they know God exists, it takes an, a, an, a very willful act of rebellion to deny God's existence. Most people will get to the place where you're, you're agnostic. Which, yeah, I'm not sure. I don't know if there's a God. That's a, that's, the, that's a humble atheism, if you will. It's a humble place to be, at least. When you recognize, well, I'm not sure, but I, I don't think I can know. But those who deny the existence of God basically become fools, though they profess to be wise. You know, to, den- to deny the most, the absolute reality in this world, and that is God. God is the eternal reality. He is the eternal truth. He existed before there was time. In the beginning was God, right? To deny him, deny that there is a God, when we talk about anything else in the world, it, it eventually causes us to speak things that are foolishness. It eventually causes us to think of things, well, the universe always has existed. It causes us to think that, well, that we all simply evolved from nothing. It's like math. You know, if you math, you deny the, ultimate, if the, the simple reality of one plus one equals two. Whatever math you talk about after that is going to be foolishness. Because one plus one does, if one plus one doesn't equal two, whatever other math you do is going to be so messed up. And that's true with denying the reality of God. If you say there is no God, when the world says there is no God, then everything else that they understand in this world, though impartially true, sometimes true, but they will, as a system, be completely foolishness. And the thing, kicker is, most people don't realize it. And for all of us, we're there at some point, especially as 
those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. God's wrath remains upon all godless evildoers. And let us, before we are quick to judge the world out there, remember, we all were godless evildoers before we came to Christ. All of us were. Thirdly, God's wrath remains or is impending and inevitable because of a third reason. These Israelites were unquenchably wicked. Unquenchably wicked. Verse 18, we read, For wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It even sets the thickets of the forest aflame, and they roll upward in a column of smoke. Israel's wickedness here is portrayed as an uncontrollable fire. And I think we live in California, well, when there was a drought, well, there is still a drought, but, you know, forest, uh, it was, you'd hear about forest fires and how uncontrollable, how they can really just, just really burn the whole forest, even from a small flame. But fires burn everything. And, it, and this, this wickedness is that it's total, it affects everything, it consumes everything, and it's visible to everyone. And the, the, small, the smoke of a forest, of a fire that rises up, makes, makes it seem visible to everybody. There is a wickedness in, in Israel, but there's a wickedness in every man and every one of us because of our sinful, fallen nature. The reason why you and I do not live lives in complete wickedness, why we don't go around just simply stealing what we want, killing people when they have something we want or when we get angry at them, why we don't just uh, uh, rape or steal or pillage to satisfy whatever our, our, our sinful, lustful desires is because God in his grace, God is, holds back man's wickedness. He's holding back man's wickedness. But when he removes his preserving hand, as he sometimes does in the scriptures, when he pulls back and allows man to go his wicked way, he allows man to just choose freely. Do whatever you want. Man consistently chooses wickedness, which burns uncontrollably. And if you, and this is true even back in Genesis 6, where the world became so wicked because of their sin. But for Israel, they were a nation that was characterized by wickedness. And we don't see the exact reference of what wickedness they were involved here in this passage, but we see it in other places, like 2 Kings chapter 17. In 2 Kings 17, verses 7 through 23, Israel's wickedness there is detailed in, in in full gore for us. They essentially copied the nations of the world uh, by worshiping other idols. They thought, they were, hey, let's be um, just, uh, let's worship one God is good, but let's worship many gods. Let's, let's kind of like get in touch with our other nations. Let's be like others and worship this God and that God. Let's have a, a, just a, a melting pot of worship. But doing so was a direct violation of their covenant promise to God. We had recently studied in Joshua, in our, one of our adult Sunday school classes, of how the people of God, when, get, when their covenant was renewed, they, they, they promised to God that we will keep your word. We will obey it. Joshua, God tells them, no, you're not going to. No, they said, no, no, far be from us. We will keep your commandments. Nevertheless, inevitably, the people of God, Israel and Judah as well, would, turn, would fail to keep God's commandment. And, here's, and this is an example of one of those times. In fact, the Israelites, this, the northern kingdom, was known for their idol worship 
an idol worship that was characterized by the people of Canaan, the worst kind of idol worship. You know, not just like putting a stone there and calling it your God. And that's just, that's a mild form of idol worship. But believing in idols that would require you to put your, send your children through the fire. That, you know, if you, many of you out there have little children. If you really worship your idol, then you would put them in the fire. Burn your children and worship. Sacrifice them to your God. It was the most wicked form of idol worship. And so we read in 2 Kings 17, 18. So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his sight. God's wrath is kindled upon this kind of wickedness in the nation of Israel. They're unquenchable in this. In this and so he would remove them and take them away into captivity. And we see this or explicitly mentioned in verse 19 then. By the fury of the Lord of hosts, the land is burned up, and the people are like fuel for the fire, and no man spares his brother. See, God's wrath allows, would allow the land and the people to be destroyed by the Assyrians. That's what's going to happen. That the, the Assyrians are going to come in, and it's going to, they're going to burn. The, it's going to be a scorched land policy. They're going to burn everything. They're going to take everyone into captivity. And those few that are left in the land are going to be at enmity with one another. They're going to be fighting with one another. They're going to be, even in the midst of, the, of Assyria's conquering of the land, they will, brother will turn on brother. They will not spare each other. And then we understand this because this is the desperation of conflict and war. Even in, and when we, if you and I were in the desperation of conflict and war, there will be great temptations for us to turn on one another as well. That's how desperate this, will, this judgment will become. They will take advantage, the brothers will take advantage of one another. They will murder one another for self-preservation. They will cheat and rob from one another. When verse 20 to 21 is a figurative description of the conflict that will take place even between not just individuals but tribes as well. Tribes will, will, will fight against one another. Verse 20, they slice off what is on the right hand but still are hungry. They eat what is on the left hand but they are not satisfied. Each of them eats the flesh of his own arm. And initially this sounds like cannibalism, and that's, it's possible that that would happen in war. But verse 21 explains this figurative language. Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim Manasseh, and together they are against Judah. In spite of all this, his anger does not turn away, and his hand is still stretched out. And so the people here turn on one another. They turn to the right, to the left. In figurative language, it talks about how they, they cut off the right and left arm. The very brothers that they are supposed to depend upon, they cut down to, in order to survive. They cheat, they rob, they perhaps even murder. And yet they're not satisfied. Two tribes are mentioned here. And two tribes of Israel, Manasseh and Ephraim, are mentioned. And if there were two tribes of Israel that were, ought to be the closest of the 12 tribes, it ought to be these two, right? What's special about Manasseh and Ephraim? Manasseh and Ephraim are unique in that they are not actually the sons of Jacob, of Israel. They're actually Jacob's grandchildren, grandsons. They're the sons of Joseph. Remember Levi, the, 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 priest, the priestly tribe, would not be given an inheritance in the land. So there was really 11 tribes, but Joseph was given a double blessing because of his role in delivering and leading the people to Egypt to be saved from the famine. And so his sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, were given a double blessing in the land. Each became their own tribe. They each became one of the tribes of Israel. So there was 12 again. And so these two ought to have been very close. 
They share the same father. And yet it tells us that Manasseh and Ephraim were fighting against one another. They would devour one another in the, in the conflict that would come with the Assyrian conquest. And the only time they stop is when they would, when they would join together to devour one of the other brothers, Judah in this case, the southern kingdom. All of this simply reflects the wickedness that would take place upon the land. There's a wickedness in the heart of man that when, when pressed far enough, when placed under the pressures of trials, of, of the crucible of, of destruction and, and conflicts, there's definitely, you, and you and I know this, I think, well, at least I sure know it, when you're under pressure, you are much more susceptible to sin. The temptation to give in to sin is so much, the temptation to, leash, to lash out at others, to protect ourselves, our own skin, we are tempted and we often give in to hurt others to do it doesn't make it right, but that reflects the wickedness of our hearts, and that was the wickedness that was unquenchable in the nation of Israel. And we read that despite this judgment that is coming, that still God's anger does not turn away. Still his hand is stretched out. God's wrath remains upon the wicked. And make no mistake, the wicked is not just Israel. The wicked is all of us, all mankind. There is none who does good. But furthermore... God's judgment is impending and inevitable for a fourth reason. And that is Israel, as a nation, are oppressors of the needy. In this very final word from God to the nation of Israel, to the northern kingdom of Israel, he pronounces a woe upon the nation. Remember when we studied woes in the past, a woe is really just a sound, is a sound of groaning that people would make when they were under judgment. That you're going to just say, whoa. Is, you know, that's kind of how their sound is. And so this judgment will be so terrible that the people are going to experience woe. And so God now declares upon Israel that they will be experience woe because they are oppressors of the needy. Look at verse 1 and 2. Woe to those who enact evil statutes and to those who constantly record unjust decisions. So as to deprive the needy of justice and rob the poor of my people of their rights. So that widows may be their spoil and that they may plunder the orphans. You see, the helpless in society in those days were the widows and orphans. And even today, widows and orphans tend to be some of the most helpless people in our society. But the people of Israel in those days, particularly those from the ruling class, the political class, the merchant class even, were using their, their privilege to enact statutes and, and, and make decisions to take advantage of these needy, these widows, these orphans, and all needy people in those days. They used their power to rob the needy, to deprive them of justice, to take away their rights, to take their spoils, to plunder them. And God promises a judgment for them they are, because they are oppressors of the needy. You know, when I read this verse, and I read these first two verses, I couldn't help but think about our nation today. Now, I know we live, we can look at other nations of the world, and we say, oh, those nations are much worse than our nation. Our nation is really wonderful. It's a great place to live. And I don't, I, don't, I don't disagree with that. It is a great place to live. We have much freedom. We can worship God freely here, which we ought to give thanks to God for. But if we follow our news and we read about our nation, uh, there's a lot of anger. There's a lot of anger among our, our, our nation, among various peoples. 
There's anger at police brutality, government corruption, systemic racism, financial shenanigans, and unknown terrorists. All these things are, uh, are causing a great anger at, at governments and authorities. Um, well, I don't think we should be, as a people of God, we should not go beyond and say, well, down with the government, anarchy. That would be foolishness. God has given us government to protect us. It's the God, God-given servant to rule over this land. But as I think about it, those, uh, we cannot deny that there is some, there is some because there are sinful men in all places, that there are some areas of our government, of our business sector, of our educational system, of all, all our different institutions where there is a dep- deprivation of justice and rights. We should acknowledge that. We should be ready to acknowledge that. That, that. that is the case in a fallen world. But I wanted simply, to, and I would, but I would add that there is one group of needy that are continually deprived of justice and rights, whose very lives are callously plundered as spoils, and that's the unborn. And you and I know that their murder under the name of abortion and their plundering under the name of medical research, all legally protected by our nation's laws, is the greatest injustice of our day. It is, because they don't have a voice. They don't get to speak up before they are torn apart, suctioned, killed. And woe to those who approve such laws. And woe to those who approve such practices. This is the second time I've said this today, and I still feel angry about it. And I'm a sinful man. I'm a finite, sinful man. How much more the wrath of a holy and just God upon those who would murder countless hundreds of thousands a year, unborn children. Woe upon our nation. Not just those who approve, but those who allow it to happen. I feel there's much more we ought to do. But this is an illustration that if we feel this injustice, how much more does God feel the affront? How much more than is God's wrath, God's anger against this oppression of the needy? And it is a great one. And, that, and we can be sure that one day there will, although right now God is holding back his wrath, his day of wrath will come. And that's what we, we're going to read in the next verse. And all will be helpless in that day of judgment. All will be needy in that day of judgment. There will be no one to deliver us from the day of God's wrath. Isaiah in verse 3 then turns his thoughts to God's earthly judgment that is going to come upon the nation of Israel because of their oppression of the needy. He says to them, now what will you do in this day of punishment? He's talking about the day when Assyria comes to conquer. But there's a, there's a foreshadowing even of the future judgment of God. And in the devastation which will come from afar, to whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the captives or fall among the slain. In spite of all this, his anger does not turn away, and his hand is still stretched out. We read here that the destruction of Israel at the hands of the king of Assyria will be so great that there will be no place for them to flee, no place for them to hide. They will lose everything that they've 
cheated others of, all that they will hear held dear will be taken away by the Syrians. They will basically have two choices left to them. They will remain to crouch among the captives. That is, they will become slaves or they will fall among the slain. They will be slain. To become slaves or to be slain is their choice. No, op- no other option will they face. This is the judgment that will come in that day upon Israel because they oppress the needy. And this would be God's punishment for, for their sin. And despite even this terrible choice that will come upon them, we read for a very a final time that this, in spite of all this judgment, this is terrible, a slave or death. You can't get really more final or more terrible than that, it seems. But yet, God says, his anger does not turn away. His hand is still stretched out. How terrible is this wrath of God? That even though we might see a series of all these these earthly judgments upon the nation of Israel, and yet God's wrath is not satisfied. God's wrath is not expiated. God's wrath is not fulfilled yet this is God's wrath it is inevitable and impending regardless of what earthly judgment that God allows for the sins of mankind there is one day of judgment that is still coming when God's wrath will be poured out a greater judgment awaits Israel than the temporal judgment of Assyrian conquest I do want to add, even as I just, I just want to add, because I, I, I felt so strongly, I kind of stated strongly the great injustice of the, the nature of, our, of the whole abortion industry. But in a world where sinful men oppress the needy, it is never justification, because we read the news about how that, that crazy man went and shot up a Planned Parenthood. And that is wrong. That is wicked. That is evil. There is never a justification for mankind, for Christians, you and me, to seek vengeance on our own. Leave the wrath of God to God. Leave the wrath of God to God. Leave justice to the governmental authorities, our police, our military. Leave it to the government and leave it ultimately to God. Romans 12, 19 tells us, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. I just want to make sure we say that. And so this is the terrible wrath of God. Terrible in the sense that it is great. It is unquenchable. Even. It is be- and it comes because of mankind's sin, Israel's sin. God's wrath does not turn away. His hand is still stretched out upon all those who are full of pride, all those who are godless evildoers, all who are unquenchably wicked, all who are oppressors of the needy. And before we point our fingers at others, let us recall that these very things we too have been guilty of. We too deserve God's wrath. But I want to leave us with three things. In light of this, God's wrath is not just an Old Testament doctrine, it's also a New Testament doctrine. But in the New Testament, we see that this God's wrath is, then, is, is, uh, is fully is fully then revealed in the light of Christ. And so three things I'll conclude us, we're going to conclude with. Number one is this. Do not believe, do not believe the myth that delayed wrath means no wrath. For delayed wrath does not mean there is no wrath coming. There are people who say, well, where is God? If God's a holy God, a wrath of God, well, where is the judgment? 
Where is this promise that he's coming? Uh, he said he's going to do it. Why hasn't he judged us yet? I don't believe he exists. You're just going to wait till the next tragedy and say, oh, that's the wrath of God. No, don't believe that lie. Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 2, verse 5, because of your stubbornness and an unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. God in his mercy and his kindness is holding back his judgment. It's true. He's holding back the day of wrath. But make no mistake, every time you sin, every time you, you commit an evil deed, a thought, or you do not obey, obey a righteous command of the Lord, you are storing up wrath for yourself. You are storing up God is angry at that sin. And there is a storing up, an increase, if you will, of God's wrath that we poured out for sin. All sin, every single sin. And there is a coming day that God's wrath will eventually be poured out for sinner, on sinners for their sin. But until then, we are all storing it up for ourselves. That's what the scriptures tell us. And as sinful human beings, we are helpless. It's not like we could do a bunch of good deeds and kind of wipe out all the sin. God's a holy God. If we do what is good, that's what we ought to do before, how we ought to behave before a holy God. We are punished for our sin. So number two, what we realize we need is we need propitiation. Now, whoa, what's propitiation, some of you might say. Propitiation is a biblical word, and so I wanted to include it. Propitiation is the appeasement of God's wrath. Because when we sin, God is angry, and God's wrath is, poor, is, going to, is being stored up against our sin. He hates sin, and he, judge, he will judge. He wants to judge sin. But the problem is we cannot appease God's wrath with our own deeds. You can't just do enough good deeds and say, oh, God, we're good now, right? You can excuse my murder, my thievery, my adultery, right? We're good because I did all these things. I, I gave all my money away, all 99% of it. I'm good with you, right? I'm good because I went out and I fed the hungry and I, and I, and I helped uh, help heal those who are sick. No amount of good deeds can appease God's wrath for our sin because he is a holy God, an eternal holy God. What's more, we cannot appease God's wrath with our acts of penance and suffering. We can beat ourselves. Oh, I, oh Lord, I know I deserve wrath. Oh, ugh, ugh. you know, beat ourselves. Like the, those who, you know, uh, used to do that. They, you know, some people around Easter would crucify themselves all over again. They'd actually crucify themselves, have themselves crucified. Well, not to the point of death, but they would crucify themselves, as you, some of you may know, as an act of penance. But even that, no matter what you do, you can, you can strip off all your skin, peel it all off. You can, and you can cut off every limb, and still that does not appease the wrath that is being, held, that is being stored up for your sin. And what we need is propitiation, and with this propitiation is provided from God. Romans 3, 25a says, we are justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Christ's atoning death, redeeming death on the cross, appeased God's wrath. The God's very own son, the eternal God, mighty God, eternal father, the Prince of Peace came so that we who are helpless in sin might have our, that God's wrath resolved through his death on the cross. The appeasement of, Christ, of God's wrath is because, comes through Christ. And so thirdly, 
This is why we celebrate Christmas. Because the birth of Christ is about the deliverance of God, of, from God's wrath. The gift of his son was so that we might be delivered from God's inevitable and impending wrath. Romans 5, 8 through 9 says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. See, we've learned today that God's wrath does not turn away, and his hand is still stretched out upon sin, every act of sin. Yes, the sins of you and I, even as Christians. It's not like, oh, God, just, oh, I don't, I don't, oh, you sin, okay, that's okay. There's a wrath that our, each and every sin that you and I commit deserves, part that's, that we all deserve. And God's wrath does not turn away. It's not diminished because of any, anything else that we may do in this world. But for those who have repented of their sin and believed in Christ Jesus, God's wrath has been poured out on Christ. That wrath that you and I all deserve for our sins. That wrath that you, every single one deserves and is one day will be coming. It's inevitable. It's impending. It will come. Read Revelation. It's going to come and Jesus is going to be at the head of it. That wrath will, that, that you deserve was experienced by Christ on the cross. Christ took our place on the cross. The very one who took our place is the very one whose birth we celebrate. And so as you and I celebrate Christmas this season, we remember the birth of our Savior. But remember, let's not forget. Let us remember in light of this, all this hope has about wrath. And I hope that didn't create you, make you feel too, you know, discouraged. But that it would cause you to remember and rejoice in more that that's why I have Christ. And if you don't have Christ, make sure you have Christ. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, I beg and plead you, I offer you, well, God offers you the free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus through faith in him. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. That's why Jesus Christ came and be delivered from the wrath to come because that wrath is inevitable and impending. It is coming. Either it will be born by Christ on the cross for you it will, or it will be born by you on the day of judgment. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you, Father, in light of this terrible, this terrible yet clear picture of your wrath that you, we have a Savior, that you have sent us your Son who came to die in our place so that we would be delivered from the wrath that is to come. This terrible wrath that, that is a just wrath in every way, a holy wrath, an eternal wrath, but a wrath that we thank God. We thank you. We thank Jesus because Christ took it in our place on the cross. And Lord, we pray that we would continue to, that we would respond in thankfulness, that we would tell others about this, that we would not keep this to ourselves but that we would share with others this Christmas season of why we celebrate Christmas. And Father, if there's any here who do not yet know Christ, may you cause them to realize that this wrath is, is not just is not make-believe. It's, it's, it's not just an illusion. It's not just a figure of speech. This is what your word tells us. 
Israel experienced it. Judah experienced it. And we will all experience it one day unless we believe in Christ. And I pray, Father, for them that you would do a work in their hearts, cause their eyes to be opened, their hearts to see that Jesus is the Savior from sin and from wrath, and that today they would turn from sin and self and turn in faith to Christ. This we pray so that we might all, every single soul here, might worship Christ this Christmas and rejoice in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord bless you this week as you go forth. You're dismissed. You're dismissed. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you next Sunday. Actually, see you Saturday, Christmas event.